Yo, this is Jason Grant, Hippy Dippy Weatherman. Tonight's forecast is dark, followed by scattering light in the morning. If you want to think and expand education, then you need to check out this Point of Learning podcast featuring my dearest friends Brent Ferran and Peter Horn. On today's show, Brent Ferrand, a master teacher of mathematics on what we so often miss in math class. But it's like teaching a person to be a carpenter by focusing on the screwdriver, the hammer, and the saw, and forgetting that your goal is to build a house. And what kids gain from competitive debate. The structure of two opposing sides who respect each other. You have to teach that in the context of the debate and that you're not debating, I'm not debating you, I'm debating the idea you're advocating. I first met Brent about a dozen years ago when I started hanging out at his and his wife Vernell's place in Liberty, New York, a gorgeous spot in the Catskills because Brent loves to put on shows, annual mini rock concerts with lights, fog machines, eventually fireworks, that his friends dubbed Brentfest. If you know Liberty, New York, you know that it's just a stone's throw from the site of Woodstock, and not a few people who have come to Brentfest over the years are willing to share personal stories about that iconic 1969 festival. My then fiancé, Robin, and I had such a good time at Brentfest that we asked if we could hold our wedding reception at the 2010 festival. Now, on the face of it, today's episode isn't really about any of that, but I wanted to set the stage for my conversation with this man of many parts, whose skill as an educator I first came to focus on when I read letters by two of his former students supporting Brent's candidacy as a Princeton University Distinguished Secondary School Teacher, a prestigious prize that Brent won in 1994. I want to highlight that after knowing Brent for five years uh, and talking school a bit during that time, I only learned about this award, uh, that he won this award, through my dissertation research on student perceptions for outstanding teaching. I would never have found out about it from Brent, who, in addition to being insatiably curious about everything from law to mathematics to painting to beekeeping, is also one of the most modest, brilliant people I know. For this conversation in late July about the value of mathematics and debate, two of Brent's great passions, I traveled back to Liberty, New York, where Brent grew up and has since retired. Two of my bandmates from the Brentfest cover ensemble known as Voluptuous Panic, what? Jason Grant and Dwayne Harper Grant also happen to be hanging out with their guitars, so some of their tasty underscore will season the interview. I have read a description of your class by one of your former students uh, who said that you challenged them to be 
innovators and inventors in the math classroom. What was the way that you went about that with your own students? People who know, know me probably would find this a shocking thing to say, but I was very structured in the way I taught in the beginning. Okay. I think I was a very good traditional teacher. Uh -huh. And then I began to see things that just weren't working the way I wanted them to. Um, and and I was always I always was experimenting. So I went through a period where I thought that it would be a great thing to teach high school math using the Socratic method, you know, that they use in law school. So, so you, and they were you're, you're just asking questions. And yeah, and I would work the kid back to something that uh -huh. they were certain they knew, and then build them up to the answer of their own question. Okay. To okay, if you know that now. Yeah. What, what does that mean? Then what else is yeah. what else must be they true? They build them and back up again, uh, but it's also a brutal method. And I remember I made a young uh, young girl in my class, geometry class uh, cry uh -huh. under the pressure of Socratic questioning, and I th I went home. I was devastated. I went home and I thought I, I thought if my teaching method is upsetting such a sweet kid like that this much there's something wrong so i went back in the next day and i asked i want you to write down every theorem that you don't understand and a brief explanation of why so i can learn what we need to do together well i got back from her every single theorem that we covered since the beginning of the year and under the reason why i can't picture it huh. and it was a revelation to me Wow. That's, that's where I measure the change. Okay. Because I was at the same time doing reading about how the human mind thinks. Sure. We think in pictures. We, sure. You know, not in words and symbols. We think in pictures. And I went, whoa. And that's why in geometry I started making this shift to a much more, less Euclid, more what geometry really is. The study of shapes and figures and their interrelationship. The measurement yeah. of the earth. Literally measuring the earth. Yeah. Geometry. Yeah. So that's where I marked my change. Uh -huh. And I'll give you an example of a, an inventor in the classroom. His name is Kumar Lee. This thing called the River Project. We got this bright idea that we were going to do interdisciplinary, it was a great idea, interdisciplinary study of river civilizations and all the subjects through the culture and the history and. <coughs> you know, the intellectual life of that river system. Okay. Because um, you can tie in geography and So this and, kid who what was always, and, I yeah. never saw the brilliance in him until we did the river project and they were talking about uh, pyramids. And why did the Egyptians be, build pyramids like that? And, and, and you know, the standard answer is because of just building up they didn't have a way to build straight up so they built like this Kumar goes no do you ever think that it might have been to reflect the sun off of the building so that inside was cool the slanted roof doesn't absorb the sun it reflects the rays off and the museum curator sat there and went wow that could be true but did they hang out inside the pyramids? Or, people, well, or weren't, they, I mean, weren't they, they just big 
Remember, they felt that the dead lived, you know, that was uh, their home, their afterlife I see, home. I see. So the so dead they, would be more comfortable. Yeah. I got it. Okay. I you want to keep the dead cool. Well, I had an image in your story of like a pyramid as an office building. Well, you know, for when you, when you maybe said we that. should go back. To and that. I was I like, don't I don't, I don't remember you that. Remember Kumar? Hell yeah. So, I at that point, this point, I had also started teaching equation solving by. I take this first day of class and go, okay, I'm going to play, uh, we're going to play a, uh, I'm thinking of a number game here. Multi uh, you multiply that number by three and you get 15. What's the number? Gotcha. Five! And then I'd ask them to say, what did they do? And we worked all the way up to in the first day of class to pretty complex equations by me thinking of a number and doing this to it. And that's algebra. I said, you just learned all of Algebra 1. But now we're going to learn how to write it on paper. That's all we're going to do now. As Brent continued to experiment with how to do math class in ways that reached the most students, he, like any teacher, had to figure out how to engage different kinds of learners. For instance, there's a type that might be called number crunchers. Number crunchers can be very frustrating to teach because you ask them to explain how they got the answer. They go, I don't know, it just came to my head. Or I just figured it out. Yeah, you just you, crunch, you just crunch them. That, then they finally say, I tried lots of different numbers. Like, okay, so what made you decide to try the numbers that you did? I don't know. I said, well, did you try 100? No, that would be absolutely ridiculous. And then I would get them to explain why that was a ridiculous suggestion on my part. And in the end, what I got is the number crunchers to communicate with the deductive reasoners. And it was beautiful. You have some teachers who seem like they became math teachers because they were used to getting the right answers as math students. And the so they were good at it and it was pretty easy they're for awesome them. And so they're awesome. them. Right. They're awesome technicians. So like, there you go. Like, like, it's like a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a technicians. technician. Yeah, technicians. And we need technicians, but they don't necessarily make the best math teachers. Yeah. They actually are for some kids, which is amazing. I had to learn that too. There are some kids that just need rules. I know, and if you try to teach them concepts and relationships and stuff, they get really upset. Yeah. I've had kids yell at me in class, just tell me the rule and I'll follow it. Brent used to host a short weekly segment during his high school classes called Math Mysteries, where he invited kids to talk about math procedures they regularly carried out but never understood why. I felt I had to tell him why this resonated so much with me. I can remember doing, uh, you know, long division in fourth grade, you know, for example, and 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 long being division is crazy, and being taught, you know, what a what a what a divisor was, and what a dividend was, and what the remainder was, and 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 how to you know line up these these columns according to the, just to divide, but. but <laughs> You know, and where to, you know, and where, where to write, you know, like as a little subscript ahead, you know, as you were going into, and to divide into the next, you know, set. But I was always like, 
wh- why aren't you explaining why we're doing like I understand that this is like a valid practice I get it like it gets you to the right answer yeah. but I don't understand what's really what's going on like you just stop like, and think about like what's going on like why does this method work because it felt less and less relevant and then that just increased and that just increased as the things got more complicated that we're doing you know and i could figure out how to do it pretty well but i really wanted to understand but then you know there were other things that i was more interested in i think that's i can remember that moment i'm I'm gonna turn it to your discipline of of language arts english yeah uh it would be like teaching the kids how to be stenographers but not how to write yeah that's what we do in mathematics you end up with a 12th grader taking calculus who's got already 1500 recipes in their math box in their head and they're jumbling it around where there's no connections between any of them and no reason why The whole system of mathematics is really resident in the human mind. It's an internal thing. Kids love to play with mathematics if you let them. Little kids. Counting. I mean, their mind is just going crazy with mathematics inside. But we create this interface. I just wanted to double-click on that a second. So have you ever had, have you ever played with that, like with, say, one of your grandchildren? Yeah, yes, all the time. Do you have like a... You know, a quick example of a, like I have a, a mathematical better, play. I have a better yeah. example with uh, Whitney. Okay. Because Whitney has an awesome mathematical mind. Your daughter, Whitney. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I remember at a very young age, I don't remember when, uh, I was having a conversation about shapes and the names of shapes and the characteristics of it. I mean, she may have been three or four, maybe five, but no larger. So. We went through a number of different ones, and it came to trapezoid. And I would just put the figure in front of it, her, and say, well, so what do you see here? And then we'd attach the name to it, you know. Well, that's a circle. That's a triangle. We came to trapezoid, and Whitney looked at it, and she said, oh, that's an unfinished triangle. Boom. Now, the, the depth of that concept is, is incredible because there's so many formulas for the trapezoid that are based on it being an unfinished triangle. Yeah, one half little base plus big base times height, right? The yep, quantity exactly, is, right? exactly. Uh, and in the whole uh, locus area, you know, movements of points and lines and stuff of math, sees the trapezoid as an unfinished triangle. Right. It didn't get all the way up to the top. It stopped here. That word was one of the I don't know. That word was one of the hundreds of things that got me interested in wanting to learn Greek later on. Uh, when I look, I was like, where does trapezoid? This is such a weird word. What it does is. this mean? Um, and then I looked it up in the dictionary and found out it was Greek for table. And I, you know, trapeza, you know, or oh. trapeza is, uh, is the Greek word for table. And of course, that it does look like that. And I was like, well, that's wicked cool. Yeah. I like that. It's like, you know. Either way you flip it, it looks like a table. Yeah. Yeah. Depends uh, like what decade you're in, I suppose. So what I was getting to is that um, what we do in mathematics is we we teach the interface, which is algorithms, calculative algorithms. We teach that interface as math, 
and never connected recipe, recipes. Yeah, thinking of an algorithm yeah, so the, as a recipe. Those recipes we can think Here's of as the do. interface. Gotcha. Right, uh, and we never connect it to pictures, which goes back to the story I told before about the young girls that I, I just can't picture it. So, which we, prompted you to rethink? Right. Everything. So. The human mind is so naturally adapted to mathematics, but then we create this interface of algorithms that gets between that and what's going, between the user and what really is math. So I'm reducing that interface so that the mind and the subject can get right smack together. It's a beautiful way to think about uh, it. Is I think the key to more enriched mathematical teaching. Stop teaching the interface, except as a tool, not as the thing. But it's like teaching a person to be a carpenter by focusing on the screwdriver, the hammer, and the saw, and forgetting that your goal is to build a house. Okay. And not even showing that that's what we're really focused on. We're focused on the hammer, the screwdriver, and the saw. That we have to stop doing in education. The tools are absolutely important. I mean, you can't have a discussion about history without understanding the tools of geography. So they're critical, but they if that's the limit of our vision, then we haven't we haven't really educated. Act two, subject to debate. Though Brent's teaching career was almost entirely spent in New Jersey at Science High School in Newark, he grew up in and around this Catskills town called Liberty, a great spot for a wedding, parenthetically, which he called, and I quote, the greatest. Among his most important teachers was a man named Ed Wolf, who took a philosophical approach to the instruction of mathematics that really resonated with Brent. Remarkably, Mr. Wolf was the only math teacher that Brent had in high school. Turns out Brent and his classmates requested this particular teacher each year, and the school complied. And so for five years in a row, all throughout high school plus eighth grade, Brent had a math teacher who challenged kids to think about more than the mechanics of mathematics. You may not be surprised that Brent and Ed Wolf became lifelong friends. Brent credits debate, though, as what kept him in high school, especially his debate coach, Barry Talkington, who will be a significant player in the second half of the episode. Debate was intellectually very exciting, Brent recalls. After getting involved in radical politics at Clark University, Brent eventually decided to teach, but it wasn't a straight shot. In 1974, he drove a milk truck. In 75, a plumbing supply truck. Brent earned a master's in history and did a stint in law school. Along the way, he got certified to teach social studies, then math. All right. So, after applying for jobs to teach math with a few suburban New Jersey schools that were not a good fit, Brent feels grateful to this day that Newark was enthusiastic about his promise to establish a debate team if he were hired. 
He began his Newark career teaching one year at a middle school, then started at Science High in the fall of 1979. 79. 79. And you started this. Uh, you started the debate team the same year. Mm-hmm. Nice. Just as an internal debate, you know, kids debating each other within the school. And the second year, we went out on the tournament circuit. And how how hot was the tournament circuit in 1980? It was big. Yeah. It was incredibly intimidating for us. But I knew we could do it. And the kids knew they could do it. And we decided we were going to emulate the best Bronx science. What they did, we would learn to do. How did you emulate them? I mean, did you... Research techniques, team cohesiveness, you know, team spirit, longevity, not just building stars, broad-based program. Mm-hmm. And I think we did that. The legendary Bronx Science High School debate team was coached for over three decades by a formidable English teacher, Shakespeare lover, and Bronx Science alum named Rich Sadako. Brent and I discussed Sadako's approach. How did you find out those things about how he was running that program? By joining the circuit and him and actually taking our program under his wing. Is that right? Yeah. Great man. My kids loved him. And one of the reasons we were on our first trip up to the Mid-Hudson League debate tournament, second trip, second trip, and our bus broke down. Coming up to Monticello, and our bus broke down. And so by the time we got there, where everybody had lost first round, we forfeited. And I mean, we, I think we left the tournament, I think probably out of six teams we took, we had one win. And of course, the bus was pretty depressed, and Richard Sadako got up on the bus, and he gave this little talk about, you know, welcoming him to the Sustan Circuit, and, you know, your bus isn't always... He was just very, very warm, and then he went down the aisle and spoke to each kid individually, and then got off the bus. And this is a man who is running the biggest, most successful debate program in the entire United States. I mean, when you went into elimination rounds, say there were 16 teams that made elimination rounds, it was not unusual for 10 to 12 of them being from Bronx Science. Most tournaments were closed out by Bronx Science. Hmm. They were awesome. And he took the time to do that. And he mentored me a lot. That's terrific. And Barry Talkington had mentored him. How about that? Yeah. So, Brent's old high school debate coach, Barry Talkington, had not only inspired Brent enough to keep Brent going to school, but he'd also mentored this legendary debate coach, Rich Sadako, who some years down the line mentors Brent in how to be a great debate coach. What's beautiful to me about a trace of influence like this is that so often teachers are not really sure about what results from our work. We believe we make a difference, but it's hard to quantify very different from baking something from scratch or making sculpture from scrap metal, say, where there are concrete, observable products of the effort and skill invested in the project, which is why it's so meaningful when former students circle back to say thank you, or here's what I'm up to now, or in the case of Rich Sadako talking to Barry Talkington, 
about Brent Ferrand, and I'm paraphrasing how this conversation might have gone down, because you showed me the ropes when I was a new debate coach, I'm paying it forward with Brent and his team at Science High Newark. In semi-retirement, Brent spends some time these days spreading the gospel of debate to classrooms where teachers use argumentative tools to solidify learning objectives, having kids debate about topics like who or what is the mockingbird in the title of Harper Lee's famous novel. Based on my work in schools, I had a question about this approach. So let me put this question to you because, you know, the the reservation when when I'm talking about... um, when I'm working with schools on how to do civil discourse, um, one of the things I can get leery about sometimes is structuring every argumentative discussion where kids have the opportunity to express their ideas as a debate because it frames it as, you know, this is going to be a contest there's going to be winners and losers. You have a fixed position. You know, you're just kind of arguing your case as opposed to doing the things that you'd want for, let's say, citizens discussing an issue of, of shared concern. You'd want to be able to have people, you know, think and see another person's point of view and change their mind. Yeah, or it's another that, form of discourse. I right. think that... It has things that the debate model doesn't, and the debate model has things that that, that more freewheeling okay. uh, discussion has. Uh, and I think the structure of two opposing sides who respect each other, you have to teach that in the context of the debate, and that you're not debating, I'm not debating you, I'm debating the idea you're Advocating right away, you're and, taking away and, the possibility of an ad hominem attack. Right, only an idiot would say something like that. Exactly. <laughs> right. So, at its the way, if it's done the way it's supposed well, just, to do, I just it's wanted right. to underscore that point because mm-hmm. I think that you know the respect is something because again, when when kids even you know unfortunately look at presidential debates now, you know there's not you know a, a level of respect. Um, you know, subtending and they're the not engagement. They, they're scoring. They're, you know, they're just trying to score uh, points with their audience, which is their base mm-hmm. out there. That's what they're doing. And, and so those, the kinds of, these are the kinds of models that kids are seeing now. You know, when they're saying, when they're thinking of, well, what does debate look like? You know, exactly. So but I think that the res- but respect has to be good. But the te- because competitive debate, I, I think everyone who's involved in it realizes that it reaches a, a select few of kid uh, span of kids uh, who are interested in doing it at that level because it's intense. I believe it's the best teaching approach that there is. Uh, competitive debate, what it does for an individual is just absolutely incredible. But it'll only reach a a narrow bandwidth. Classroom debate will introduce that to every kid. You can have debate in art class, you can have it in math class. I used to do it all the time in math class. Mm-hmm. Um, social studies is just perfect for it. It doesn't always have to be the 
can be parliamentary debate, which is more of each individual, uh, you know, presenting their position and trying to form a coalition around their idea, or the, all the uh, role-playing stuff that Jason did in his classes. Jason, once again, is the social studies teacher, guitarist, and Boone Pal hanging out at Brent's place the weekend we recorded. You heard his mellifluous baritone reprising an old George Carlin bit at the top of the show. I mean, those, those are kind of a different format of debate when you set up a Continental Congress or you, you uh, try Thomas Jefferson for treason. You've got a defense lawyer and you know team and a prosecution team. Am I describing this right? Well, I think then you just shout fake news. <laughs> <laughs> No collusion. Well, see, right? that's, that's the thing. That's all you have to do. And debate teaches you how to how to how to differentiate fact from fiction. Just th- not through rules, just through the process of you and I debating an idea and and knowing that if we're going to win the debate, it has to be based on fact. It's all variations on how do you know? How do you know that this is the case? Yeah. Like what? What evidence? What warrant? What are you going to present to like make the you know see things the way you're seeing things? How do you know that what you're saying is you know the way that things are, or the way that things should be? If you're doing a policy debate, what is the truth? Where is the ground under our feet? Um, well, it's a different you know. So the. Like a bromide that you could have relied on throughout your debate coaching career was something to paraphrase or even quote Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you know, uh, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own set of facts. Right. Right. I mean, that was kind of, people could agree on that. You're like, okay, well, we got the facts. We may look at them differently. But now, of course, as has been observed many times, I've got my set of facts. The people who listen to that radio station have their set of facts. The people who read Breitbart have their set of facts you know we're not you know like that part and this is part of what you know President Obama was talking about in his Mandela speech on Monday Um, I can't I can't have an argument with you about global warming if we're not going to come at this with you know with your understanding here's where scientific consensus is like it's not we're not going to be able to do that without a common foundation of things accepted as factual all communication breaks down, and, and so being able to determine what is factual and what is not, or at least being able to consider it in a very reflective and critical way, uh, is absolutely critical in modern education. Um, and I think debate teaches that well because. You have to have evidence for what... Now, what is evidence is also in flux now, but you have to have evidence to support your argument. But the the evidence never does the debating. It's the human mind of the two debaters who are challenging in that piece of evidence, does it reflect reality? Should you as a judge vote on this piece of evidence? And that is such powerful learning for you know a student in the 21st century or for a human being in the 21st century and I don't think anything but te- debate teaches that so well because it's two student minds 
each with their own construct colliding with each other. And out of that collision, that those contradictions that develop, a deeper understanding occurs. Thank you. And best debaters don't see their opponent, the other team in the round, as an opponent, but as a collaborator in this great symphony of, of argumentation. And when it's over between two incredible teams, it's like, wow, what we created in this last hour. It wasn't you won, I lost. It was like, God, that okay. was awesome. Is there an example that sticks with you about, you know, how the experience of debate changed a kid or, you know, changed the way she could think or thought about herself? I mean, is there is there an example that sticks to you about like, yeah, here's how here's how doing this? See, I I don't I hesitate to use it really changed a kid. Because I think what debate does is it touches what is inside that kid. Okay and it just comes bursting forward it all of a sudden finds an outlet nice. debate is an art form and debaters are artists and they have all of the personality quirks <laughs> of artists they really do uh but so i don't know it, it maybe it changed the context in which they were maturing and therefore affected uh, uh, their maturing process in a profound way, but it didn't change them. It was there. It just wasn't being given an opportunity to come forward and and really sh debate is two minds colliding with each other and sharpening each other through the collisions. Nice. And you know, I've struggled with a lot the, the the structure of it being a competition. Uh, and I have to come down to if it, competition is very healthy if it is managed in a humane way and based on respect and based on based on I mean, respect that's the, that's yes. the huge thing I mean you know that we're, we're we have so many examples of winning at any cost that's you know I, I believe the vast majority of debate coaches understand this that they have on that narrow band of students they have more impact on the development of that person probably than anybody else but their parents will have in their life. And it's an uh, awesome responsibility. And I, I'm proud to say the vast majority of debate coaches that I know do that awesomely. It's hard to quantify Brent's influence on the U.S. debate scene through Science High in Newark, New Jersey, but also at the collegiate level through his work with Rutgers University. Let me offer this quick anecdote as an example. I've noted that Robin and I wanted a rock and roll wedding reception at Brentfest 2010. So it happened at one point that summer that I called Brent's cell phone with a logistical question. He answered, but pretty soon he said, I can't talk long, I'm at the White House. One of Brent's debaters had won the top speaker award in the Urban Debate National Championships, and President Obama was honoring her and a handful of stellar peers in the Oval Office. Such presidential attention to urban debate was unprecedented, but 
Ernie Duncan, who was Education Secretary at the time, had become a huge proponent after he saw the difference it had made when he was superintendent in Chicago. The first female, all-black female team to make it big on the national stage came from Newark Science. One of the, it was Wakila Felton and uh, Diana Dunker. So years later, uh, the local cable network did a retrospective on Science High Debate, just a historical view of it. And Roger Leon was there, Jonathan. Diana Dunker went from Science High to law school. She argued three cases before the New Jersey Supreme Court, two of them precedent setting. At the time of the interview, Brent is recalling, Dunker was uh, the chief operations officer for the National Association of Urban Debate Leagues. They asked somewhat of the same question of how did debate change you? And she said, it was very simple. She said, through debate, I saw that if you prepared, you worked, thought, as soon as that door closed and the debate began, I realized it didn't matter that they came from wealthy homes and I came from a poor home. It didn't matter what the color of my skin was and the color of their skin was. In an intellectual battle, it was even ground and we could win. And she said, we could win. And she uh, said, and that reverberated through my entire adult life when I would walk into you know, uh, a legal uh, negotiation or arguing in front of the Supreme Court, I no longer had the fear. I knew I could do it. So, but that wasn't like we changed her, that was inside of her. She was a voracious reader before she came into debate. She had that drive, that intellectual spark. It just opened up a door for her, where she could flourish. close, Brent had a thought about bringing math and debate together. I learned through constructivism that human beings learn by having a particular constructive understanding that they developed from past experience and then bumping into a experience that contradicts some of their current understanding and then the mind goes into overdrive to resolve that contradiction that's the learning process we're wired cognitive dissonance yeah we're wired to not like cognitive dissonance and to find some way to make it fit and then it struck me that math is very much that system internally uh because all contradictions have to be resolved uh and that's that's the core of debate. You have an affirmative case, a particular uh, construct of understanding, the negative pokes at it, and you have to respond to that contradiction. And the debate is just, the best one is a bouncing back and forth between the two, rising higher and higher towards what is the core truth. So grateful to Brent, a.k.a. Andy Ferrand, for sharing some reflections about core truths in the teaching life. Thanks also to Jason Grant and Dwayne Harper Grant for their contributions to our soundtrack jam session. 
And thanks so much to you for listening, sharing, rating, and subscribing to this podcast. Please let me know you're doing all that. Thank you for spreading the word about Point of Learning to everyone you know curious about what and how and why we learn. Back at you just as soon as I can with a fall lineup sure to keep us all sharp. You know, the concept of infinity has probably disturbed many, many people. Well, that's that's why they developed infinity plus one. (laughs) (laughs) Right? In the great schoolyard? Yeah.